Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Difficult Discussions, where we talk about all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. My name is Riley Garski, and I am joined once again by the wonderful Christopher Benny. Chris, how are you doing today, and what is today's topic? Oh, Riley, I'm doing great. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about housing insecurity in the United States of America. So housing insecurity is prevalent here in the United States, and according to health.gov, 37.1 million households, including renters, owners, um, and so on, were cost-burdened. And of these, 17.6 million households were severely cost-burdened. And uh, when you look at the trends, right, black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely as white households to be cost burdened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today, uh, since, you know, Riley and I don't have a lot of expertise in the topic, we have Deacon Boggs, uh, the Madison Area Community Land Trust Housing Director, joining us to help us learn more about the topic. So, uh, Deacon, do you want to uh, quick introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so again, my name is Deacon Boggs. I'm the uh, housing director with Madison Area Community Land Trust. Uh, I'm also currently a graduate student in the uh, Department of Planning and Land- Landscape Architecture over at UW-Madison. Uh, lifetime Wisconsinite, so born and raised from the state of Wisconsin, um, and uh, pretty active housing uh, proponent. Um, been doing some of this work since undergrad and uh, hoping to continue it through uh, through MACLT and graduate school and on forward. Nice. Like Chris said, we are incredibly grateful to have you here for today's episode. Um, so to kind of start, what is the Madison Area Community Land Trust? If you could explain that a little bit more for us. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Madison Area Community Land Trust, or M-A-C-L-T, uh, it'll make it a little bit easier so it's not a full mouthful <laughs> forward. Uh, we're a community land trust in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, currently have 71 homes and a large urban farm as part of the property we hold in trust. Uh, our homes are sold affordably by keeping the land separate from the improvements um, in the transaction, which then lowers the cost, uh, the cost to purchase the home and uh, providing and allows our affordable home purchasers a predictable and stable affordable home ownership uh, option for the residents and everything. Um, a CLT works very similarly to a uh, just general land trust. Uh, we as the nonprofit hold the land in trust, uh, but we work a little differently in the, the fact that the improvements uh, are a component that we utilize and um, our residents are uh, basically own. Uh, so there is transaction occurring through MACLT, uh, but there is a, a portion of shared uh, community, uh, communal land that we work on. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for that, Deacon. So how would you define housing insecurity? That is a great question. Uh, so HUD defines it as an umbrella term that encompasses several dimensions of housing problems people may experience, including affordability, safety, quality, insecurity, and lack of housing. I always hate when they use uh, the word being defined in the definition. So the, so I do, I do agree HUD has a good definition of it. Um, and 
I would, but I would amend that definition and say insecurity is more generally a broadly encompassing term uh, to define everything that may cause humans discomfort in relation to housing. Uh, I think things often forgotten as a part of ideas of housing insecurity are generally thought to be common sense components uh, of housing. So who takes out the trash? Uh, what happens if there's a leak? How do I confront my roommate? These are all components of housing insecurity, but I think for the sake of brevity, affordability is a pretty good term, uh, good item to examine through the lens of housing insecurity. I think we could really dive into the minutia of uh, code compliance and keeping the home in a uh, good state as a component of housing insecurity. Uh, but affordability really does do a good job of wrapping up all of those uh, pieces of insecurity uh, in a, a little bit more easily digestible conversation. Talking about roommate conflicts can sometimes get a little bit, it, it's hard to see the overlaps of where uh, roommate conflict does involve and lead into housing insecurity. So I really, it's easier for us to probably chat on the uh, realm of um, affordability in, in regards to housing insecurity. So that's typically the, the at least moving forward where I'll, I'll, I'll focus a lot of our conversation. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, that's great. So um, my limited knowledge of this issue, you know, I kind of understand housing insecurity from an economic standpoint, given my background. And so I have a lot of fun and doing nerdy things and studying the economy. And right now, one of the things I've noticed is with rising interest rates, you know, that is causing a lack of investment in building new housing for people. Um, it's making it unrealistic for families to build homes with these kinds of interest rates. Um, and that's really the bulk of my knowledge. So I kind of wanted to dive into you with you what kind of other systemic institutional issues that are going on in America that contribute to the current housing insecurity crisis that's going on. So feel free to dive into that and expand yeah. my horizons. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I will say um, the interest rates are definitely a component. Um, building new housing is obviously... Uh, the biggest component in addressing a supply or a supply issue mm -hmm. that we have in housing. Um, I would say it's the tip of the iceberg. I think uh, if we look in the short term, absolutely interest rates are playing a role. Uh, but in the long term, I mean, since 2008, we had a, uh, I mean, frankly, 2008 was a, a pivotal time for um uh, housing and the real estate market in general market crash was a big part, but this, the, um, federal reserve adjusted their interest rate to be as low as it had been. And we saw a slight uptick in housing building, but I mean, realistically, we're just not to the level that we need to, um, the, the inherent problem is the supply issue we have goes beyond what, uh, federal policy can really address we're building we're not we have never built enough housing to meet our demand mm -hmm. um and that's one of the the inherent problems is the supply problem is is uh out outpaced uh the population growth is outpacing our housing supply uh beyond whatever uh policies that we have put into place at this point in time um but i think when we look at the U u.s i mean historically obviously one of the the key components is um 
uh, is a racial component. I mean, the U.S. has a history of slavery that um, essentially took people and put them into a community that they were not a part of prior to this. And um, even in the post, uh, post-Civil post War era, uh, we gave, uh, there, there was not a just transition from uh, people who were enslaved to free people. Um, that transition just in and itself was a major shift. Um, and I, so one of the things I, I'll highlight is uh, how even in the post-Civil uh, War era, the communities that had slaves were actually more well uh, well off now uh, in integrating those uh, populations into their communities. I, I, I won't say that there's any one better than the other, uh, but there are some evidence or there are some components uh, and pieces that were built in uh, to institutional and governmental setups of how housing was distributed. One of the, one of the big, uh, a couple of the big examples would be racially restricted covenants and redlinings. Uh, these, these are really uh, core components to the systematic uh, segregation of our communities. Um, they're, they're really good and emblematic of how the US, uh, even though communities might not have participated in slavery, still participated in segregation. Uh, often pointed to as Milwaukee uh, as one of the most segregated communities in the US. A lot of that has to do with uh, uh, redlining and racially restrictive covenants. Uh, those, those pieces uh, and that segregation has drift, driven a higher amount of uh, and higher rates of housing insecurity, I would say, uh, and are key components to that housing insecurity discussion. Um, I think too, if we if we want to look at a short-term scale, um, we absolutely can, and I think it's really easy for us to point to uh, the immediate ability to not uh, to not access credit as a component of that. But if your if your family had been uh, historically segregated from a marketplace in the first place, um, you're just playing with a half half the deck of cards in the first place. I mean, you weren't dealt a full hand, and because of that, uh, even the uh, housing opportunities that are afforded to us, so the mortgage interest, uh, tax credit, the um, down payment assistance programs, they're still harder to get to because there's a level that you have to reach before you can get to those things uh, where they can assist you at that point. Is that kind of, I, I, I know I'm going a little broad and then focusing, focusing it back a little bit in the, the modern day, but I think a little bit of that historical context is important to, to set up where we're currently at with uh, housing uh, security and insecurity here in the U.S. No, I think you did great, Deacon. But uh, could you, uh, for our listeners, right, could you let us know what redlining is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, back in uh, prior to the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Act, banks would uh, make maps of communities and note where they would want to see investment. Um, those maps had been specifically drawn to include and exclude communities. Uh, here in Madison, so where I'm going to school and where I'm doing a lot of my work, uh, Madison was a redlined community. Um, people point to, if you're familiar with the Park Street Triangle area, um, 
it was a historically black Italian Jewish uh, working class community that was redlined. Um, and as a component of that redlining had historic uh, disinvestment. So think of the mortgage as, I mean, it is essentially an investment in the, the home that somebody's living in. And if a bank isn't going to provide an investment in the home or in a portion of that community, that community is going to suffer uh, because that home the, that uh, home might not have as much access to uh, affordable credit, might not be able to keep itself maintained. And because of that, it had been historically um, marginalized and uh, scrutinized. There have been redline communities that have succeeded and uh, built themselves up and are in a good spa space right now. Uh, but that uh, redlining of a community was a, a component where banks were saying where the money should be invested. And the, that money was historically put into the predominantly white, predominantly middle to higher class communities and created a sense of segregation in these communities. So when we when we talk about redlining, what we're talking about is the bank's uh, targeted geographical investment or disinvestment of a community. No, thank you so much. And also for our listeners, a fun and interesting fact, the term redlining actually originates from the red color lines that actually were drawn out on the maps. So, um, yeah, it's a fun fact for y'all. Yeah, I would also like to just, you know, hit the point home, like how historically important redlining is, like to have a well-rounded understanding, because when that was happening, you know, the middle class was really being built during that time. And that you can see that reflected in the fact that the middle class was majority white um, because that's where, you know, banks and investments were, ha were putting money at the time. Mm -hmm. And so nowadays when we're seeing a shrinking of the middle class, you know, it's almost impossible for communities that have been historically marginalized to even catch up when everyone right now is having a rough time even staying afloat so you know i yeah. just think it's incredibly important to recognize that history and i'm glad that we talked about it today but i'll pass it back to chris oh yeah and i just wanted to add another thing to that right is like that structurally racist justice system that we have where we have disproportional arrests and incarceration of people of color and that's severely reducing economic op employment opportunities and also strips individuals like you know of their common like communities of wealth and that's something else that we need to consider when you're looking at housing insecurity mm -hmm. um but you know, uh, Deacon, next question that I have for you would be, who is generally impacted by housing insecurity? So this is this is a good question. Um, I mean, the the easy the, the easy note is historically marginalized communities. Um, so uh, people who had previously faced housing and the communities that had previously faced housing insecurity are more likely to continue to face that housing insecurity. Um, Students are also a common example of uh, individuals uh, that are generally uh, folks impacted by housing insecurity. Um, but I do I, I do want to caveat that. So um, I think the the piece with students uh, as a, a uh, as a potential for housing insecure individuals has to be talked about that there is an institution in the university and generally an institution in the family, not all the time, but uh, that does look out for those individuals. I would say, and I would, um, 
more of a theory and less of a hard facts. I have not, unfortunately, done uh, a fair amount of the research to to have and a specific population affected and specific data behind it. Um, but folks without safety nets are really the folks that I would be most concerned and most likely to face housing insecurity issues. Um, uh, when you don't have, so, and for example, a safety net, if a student has a housing, if they're behind on rent or something like that, and they're no longer going to be able to attend the university, they would have somebody within the university, generally a dean of students or somebody that they can get into communication with. And the, the university has a housing set up. They have dorms, they have options and opportunities. Uh, and that student has a university that may or may not be proper to address the issue, but there's somebody to go to. But if you have, if you've grown up in a household where um, housing is not secure, your family is rented and um, might not have the financial capacity to continue to rent, and they need to, they need to move, or they're at at risk uh, of uh, eviction or non-renewal of their lease. Um, those are all components that play into that, uh, where there's no safety net, there's nothing to fall back on, and because of that, there's more issues towards that housing insecurity. Um, and so I, 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 sorry, I don't really have like a specific data point or a data set as to people who would. Uh, be impacted by housing insecurity. I think it's something that it's a case by case basis. And a lot of these issues are so uh, person to person that it's hard to nail down. And I, I, I guarantee the data is probably out there somewhere. I just unfortunately did not gather that before this meeting. I, I still think the point you make about safety nets is really an important one, because like that is something I personally always think about. Like, wow, I consider like my family my parents to be my safety net because whenever I've needed to move and go someplace I could always you know crash at my parents place or right now when I'm going back to school and don't have very much money you know I can rely on my parents to take me in and you know that is allowing me to better myself but I think to myself wow if I didn't have the safety net that is my family all these opportunities would not be afforded to me because I don't have, you know, a safe place to live. But Absolutely. my family is what offers me that and what allows me to build myself up and keep myself moving forward in my life. So, you know, I, I think that's a great point you make and something that I myself often think about what I would do if I didn't have access to them. So thank you for talking about that. But... Um, next, kind of, what we wanted to talk about um, cost burden in households. So, households are considered to be cost burdened if they spend more than thirty percent of their income on housing, and severely cost burdened if they spend more than fifty percent of their income on housing. Um, cost burdened households have little left over each month to spend on other necessities such as food, clothing, utilities, and health care. Um, and black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely as white, white households to be cost burdened. Um, so kind of what do you think, why do you think that is the case? So that's a great question. Um, I would say, I'm, first and foremost, point back to redlining. That's a, a, mm -hmm. a common piece. I think also this uh, gives me some time to talk about racially restrictive covenants um, are another item to be looked at. So as a... <laughs> 
as another more devious component of uh, housing segregation, uh, some of these communities, when they were built, specifically excluded people like through deed restrictions. So essentially in the document that you sign to own your property, they say in that property document that you would not be able to sell to a person of color or uh, a person of a specific descent. I mean, some of them were so clear, they, they spoke out against Irish, uh, uh, Jewish. It was, I mean, some of these documents and I, I would, I would welcome our listeners to take a look at, uh, their deed document because some people even here in Madison to this day have deeds that were signed with racially restrictive covenants, uh, since the civil rights, uh, act has passed. That's a component that has, um, uh, no longer, it's no longer enforceable. And then, 70s it became illegal uh and but it's still something that i mean is ripe and alive within communities it is another component that uh points to that insecurity between uh communities i would also piece together of a focus on home ownership i think there's uh, there's another piece that uh the home ownership dream i think is uh is a big component of the american dream but i think it's also when we add up redlining, racially restrictive covenants, a history of segregation, what we get is communities that were not allowed to own homes in the first place because they were systematically excluded. And as a big piece of that, that homeownership has been a uh, a way for communities to grow wealth. I think if you look at uh, the U.S. and their household wealth, uh, a major and probably the largest component of the median household income and wealth status is the equity that they have on their mortgage. Um, I, I also point to the mortgage interest tax credit as being probably the biggest component of housing affordability. Um, but it's something that if you rent your property, you'll never see. And it's uh, a piece that I think when we really look at it, when it came about was obviously intent. The intention was to incentivize people to buy homes. But when we have systematically excluded people from buying those homes in the first place, excuse me, um, those, uh, those policies fall flat on their face and continue to perpetuate the systematic exclusion and uh, racism that we see in these systems. Oh, perfect. So you led us straight into the next question, right? Is, how can the United States reduce housing insecurity? Oh, that's uh, a fantastic question. One that I have uh, battled with and sat through many a, many a graduate class pondering myself. Uh, the shortest answer that I can give is build more housing. Uh, the U.S. has a fundamental supply problem, and that is the biggest constraint on the market. Um, that's something that I think, uh, regardless of what political side of the spectrum you fall on, you can agree on, we don't have enough housing in the first place. Um, and that will be one of the biggest factors in relieving that security, providing more affordability within the market. Um, I think also providing more stable forms of housing, uh, affordability would be a major factor in reducing insecurity. Uh, so there are lots of housing policies that exist, uh, low income housing tax credit or section 42 housing, uh, section eight, uh, housing vouchers are both products, uh, provided or both items and policies provided by the federal government to hopefully reduce, uh, housing costs. But 
of those two, Section 42 requires a yearly um, reevaluation of income. So one of the pieces is if you're renting a property and each year over year, your income has to be at a certain level, you're incentivized to stay at that, stay at that same level or your housing goes away. I don't think that that inherently builds into a stable and affordable or an equitable measure of providing housing at an affordable met uh, in an affordable manner. I think when we look at the equity, we've incentivized uh, a lot of uh, individuals in the 50s to buy a home, stay in that home and use that home as a wealth generation tool. But now with some of the other policies that we have, uh, we're incentivizing this idea of staying at a certain level so you can continue to afford that af housing affordability. With that said, I do think Section 42 and Section 8 are both great tools uh, and components of housing affordability that we have to build in. Um, but the major component uh, overall is the supply. Um, if we provide more Section 42 housing, if we provide more Section 8 vouchers, if we provide more CLT housing, um, I think all of those things will help reduce that housing insecurity inherently because we're reducing that affordability component. Um, but I, again, uh, being a bit biased as a employee of Madison Area Community Land Trust, uh, the CLT model does uh, provide a bit more of that stability. Uh, our homeowners do have to meet the affordability requirements, but then own the home so they can stay there as long as they would like. They uh, would have a mortgage on the property, just like a traditional homeowner. Um, but as of that, if they were to, uh, or they, they're not, their income isn't checked every year. So if they do start to build some wealth, that they do start to build some capacity, we don't have to reevaluate their income and that home becomes stable. That's the difference between, I think, when we talk about, when Riley mentions uh, a family to come back to, that's the difference between people in the household and parents moving between uh, during high school and into college versus being a 14 year old in the household and coming back to that same household after your first year in college. And that's a big deal. And that's a big difference um, as somebody who uh, got to come back to my family household after my first year in college. It was nice. It was relaxing and it felt comforting. Um, but I can imagine, I can't even imagine how stressful it would be not knowing if you have a household to come back to after your first year of college. Oh, yeah, thank you. And could you elaborate a little bit more about what are housing vouchers, right? You mentioned that. And also, like, when I, when I was listening to you describe the community land trust model, so you check the income when they're coming in. Once they have, once they meet the criteria, then they're given an opportunity to live in that spot and pay for the mortgage and is that property theirs forever in perpetuity until they decide to sell or how does that work yeah um so i'll go into the clt piece first and then i'll get back to section eight because section eight does deserve a bit more time um essentially when somebody qualifies uh for a mortgage or for a clt home uh they would be the selected buyer they go through the same process to buy the home the only difference is uh, they sign a land lease. That land lease is with us, uh, MACLT. We retain that land value or that that those land rights. They're still able to garden or do whatever they want on the land. We just hold the land rights in trust into perpetuity. And they sign a 99 or 98 uh, year lease with MACLT where 
they would pay a marginal fee somewhere between uh, 50 or $75 a month uh, to uh, rent that land. Uh, and that's what inherently keeps the property value at a lower, uh, a lower amount. Um, that uh, process does allow them then to have a traditional mortgage, refinance like a traditional mortgage would allow them to do, and all sorts of things like that. Um, getting to Section 8, though, uh, Section 8 is a, is a really interesting policy and is an often misunderstood policy. Uh, so Section 8 vouchers were a way for low-income individuals to obtain housing. What the Section 8 voucher allows is that uh, voucher would be good at any housing whatsoever. Uh, market, uh, market rate, any uh, low income, there's all sorts of uh, housing, but essentially that Section 8 voucher would then uh, mean that the resident, so the person receiving the voucher, would only have to pay a limited uh, amount of, or a set limited amount of their rent, which is determined by the, um, which is determined by the resident themselves. Um, it would not be something, or excuse me, not the resident, by the by the government. It's a set a set amount that they would have to pay. With that, though, uh, the government pays the remainder of the total rent. The Section Eight system works really, really well in this kind of marginal, marginalized community where people need that stability and they need something uh, that works. It is a cost. It it, it is cost burdensome for. Uh, the policy to be enacted, but all of this affordable housing policy is. It's it's not like one is cheaper, one is easier. They're all expensive and they all take time. Um, but what I will say with Section 8 is it does provide a sense of stability and it does provide a market tangential option. Um, but the biggest problem is, is it's overburdened. I mean, there's so many people looking for Section 8 vouchers uh and are on the wait list it's almost impossible to uh to obtain one at this point in time and if you have it uh, it's one thing that you would hold on to those households truly hold on to similar to section 42 in the sense that they still have to income qualify but that income qualification is a little bit different their their income qualification doesn't require them to be at a lower level um but it does incentivize them to uh I believe it incentivizes them to stay or uh, stay at a certain income level. Um, so there is a limited amount to the growth that uh, Section 8 provides. Yeah. Uh, as someone who worked in anti-poverty programs just a few years ago, I can definitely speak to the fact that Section 8 housing is a great resource, but for people who need housing and need it now, it's not always very efficient because like you said, we need to just build more housing as a country in general. Um, but thank you so much for talking about that kind of stuff. Um, to kind of wrap up, is there anything that you want to share with us listeners um, before you go? Um, so one of the big things I'll say is if you are facing issues of housing insecurity, one of the first places I would caution or uh, welcome you to look is your municipality. The, the city governments generally have programs. Um, I will say our rural communities don't have as polished of programs, uh, but the city municipality is there and they, they generally do care. Um, that's something that they, regardless of whatever the issue that you're facing, uh, they'll generally have a way to direct it depending on what department would generally handle it. Um, but 
overall, I, I, I do think one of the big things to take into consideration is that uh, these policies and this, this problem is so pervasive for so many more reasons than uh, we could probably talk about <laughs> in however many podcasts we set up. Uh, they're ingrained in our systems, but every step in the right direction is a good step. There's not going to be one silver bullet solution. It's going to have to take all sorts of different people working on all sorts of different solutions to provide a better housing stock and a better housing situation for those uh, for those within our communities. Um, it's going to be pervasive until we continue to work on it, and every little bit helps. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Um, and thank you to everyone who tunes into this episode on housing insecurity. We're hoping to release our next episode on April 13th, 2023. Um, if you want to learn more about difficult discussions or don donate money to our organization, as always, you can visit difficultdiscussions.com. Thanks Don't forget for the hyphen, so difficult-discussions.com. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks thank for you, listening, Deacon. everyone. Thank you. Thank you.